All right, good morning again, everybody. Let's take our Bibles, if you would, open up to Matthew chapter 9. We're moving verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. If you've just joined us, uh, we're in the ninth chapter, and we're taking a small section as we look at religion, in quotes, and the kingdom of God. Religion and the kingdom. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of these verses? Matthew 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, came to him, Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, 15, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Heavenly Father, as we... Think about these words from Jesus. We know that Jesus is God in human flesh. And every time he addresses an issue, it is the heart of our God, Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, expressing to us truth that we need so desperately. Because man is very religious, in quotes. And we can do a lot of things that seem to be religious. But in the end, the question is, are they from your heart? Are they what you want? We, ask, we have to ask questions about what we do and why we do it and for whom do we do it. These are the kinds of questions we'll wrestle with today as we look at religion in the kingdom, religion in quotes. We, we ask for blessing, Father. We ask for discernment, application. We want to honor you both in the way we teach the word and the way we respond to the word. So give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us in our generation in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, Brenda and I have raised three boys, and they're all in their 20s now, and our youngest got involved in musical theater. I have to say that I wasn't a huge musical theater person. Uh, I was coaching baseball. Uh, the other two boys played baseball really all the way through high school. But our youngest uh, played a couple years of baseball, and he started gravitating towards musical theater, and I got... Uh, invited into that world. And of course, I was always cheering for him. But uh, one of the plays that we saw somewhere along the line was Fiddler on the Roof. And there you have the famous scene of Tevia. And uh, he says these famous words. He says, because of our traditions, we have kept our balance. And he's talking about the Fiddler on the Roof balanced. For many, many years, here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to eat, how to sleep, even how to wear clothes. For instance, we always, keep on our we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition start? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. Because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. And then, of course, he says, tradition, tradition. And he starts doing that, <laughs> which is about all I got. 
It's the waving of my arms. Thank you. I do parties for a small fee. No. And that sentiment was set in a Jewish community in the play, and it communicates something that's very true, and it's true across many spectrums, that there is tradition, and, and if you talk to someone in our culture today and they talk about an uncle that goes to church a lot outside of Easter and Christmas, they'll say, my uncle's very religious. What do they mean by that? They mean probably that he keeps a set of rules that maybe they don't keep, and he attends church a little bit more often than major holidays. <laughs> He's really religious. And that's the, world, the world's word for it. And this expresses itself all around the world. You know, atheism is not still even today a real major movement in the world. There's religions all over the world. We call them world religions. Sometimes they're known as uh, cults. We have people who have belief systems in the occult. And we, we could even argue that atheism in and of itself is a religion. And so how do we as contemporary Christians who believe our Bibles navigate a world that can often express itself in religion? For example, I heard a pastor over the weekend and he was talking about Jehovah's Witnesses and there's many wonderful people in Jehovah's Witnesses. Many of them grew up in it. That's all they know. And he was saying that they have 161 rules for Jehovah's Witnesses. Here's a sampling. They cannot salute the flag. They cannot sing the national anthem. They do not celebrate birthdays. They do not celebrate Christmas. They cannot take a blood transfusion, which has cost many Jehovah's Witnesses their lives. And all because a governing body of men, started by Charles Taze Russell in the late 1800s, and then a governing body out of New York, determines truth for this group of people. If you are interested, search rules for Jehovah's Witnesses, and you will see rule after rule after rule come up. And it's sad because what happens is the people end up in this box. In fact, if you want to be a dedicated Jehovah's Witness, you are supposed to give up to 70 hours a month in door-to-door -door witnessing just to make sure that you're okay with Jehovah. In fact, your baptism is only valid, I believe this is the formula, if you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and God's holy organization, i.e. the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. So that's just one example. Now, I grew up in an Italian Roman Catholic family, and we had a lot of tradition in the Catholic Church, and there's, I want to say up front, a lot of wonderful believers in the Roman Catholic Church. But I believe I can speak to this having grown up in it. One example is we didn't eat meat on Fridays. If you ask the average Catholic when I was growing up why we didn't eat meat on Fridays, we only ate fish, the average Catholic couldn't tell you why. I'll tell you why. It was supposed to lead up to the weekend and be an expression of your penance going into Sunday worship. But most Catholics didn't know why they were doing that, but it was a tradition, and there's nothing in the Bible that says eat fish instead of meat on Fridays. But if you bit into a sandwich other than a fish sandwich on a Friday, you might feel condemned. Oh, no, I just ate bologna. And you should not eat bologna for many other reasons, but <laughs> we won't get into that. But why would you feel condemned if, if you did? And, and why, 
all the man-made tradition. Uh, there's a lot of recovering Roman Catholics, but there's people recovering from all kinds of man-made religion. And even after walking with the, the Lord 30 plus years, for me personally, I can tell you that sometimes even those man-made traditions kind of can come back into my mind. And maybe even make me think I'm right with God today because I did this and didn't do that or I'm not right with God today for those things. And the running joke among former Catholics is that what church did you attend when you were growing up? Our Lady of Perpetual Guilt. <laughs> but it's not just the Roman Catholic Church, it's the Evangelical Church as well. Because the Evangelical Church, that is the Christian Church or the Protestant Church, has its traditions as well. And for a long period of time, there was a certain way that you had to dress when you came into a church. And it was typically a suit and a dress appropriate you know, to men and women, etc. And if you saw the Jesus Revolution, you know that about late 60s, 70s, there was a major move of God at Calvary Chapel. And what happened was the hippies of that time started coming to Christ in droves. And they were coming to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Pastor Chuck Smith had been ministering in Corona, and then he ended up out in Costa Mesa, and some of those hippies started coming, and it caused a little division in his leadership. In fact, one elder who's depicted in the movie, and this was a real story, saw what was happening. The hippies were coming in with dirty feet because they didn't wear shoes, and they had blue jeans on, and they had all of their hippie regalia on. And people who were coming during that time would tell you, one man that I listened to recently said he was so poor, he only owned one pair of jeans. And he said he had to put patches on that one pair of jeans just to be presentable because he was so poor. He said, literally, that's all I had. And some of you have a pair of jeans like that that you need to repent of because <laughs> you, you, have, you haven't washed them since the late 1990s. And they stand up on their own. That's a sign. You should wash those jeans. But anyway, I digress. And so one Sunday, as the hippies were coming in, this elder put up a sign. You must have shoes on, and you cannot wear blue jeans if you're going to come in here and worship. And Chuck saw the sign, and Chuck was angry. He said, who put the sign up? And he confronted the guy. And the guy said, well, I put it up. And he said, why? He said, well, because I don't want them, they're dirtying the carpet with their feet and they're not dressed properly to come into worship. Now, as the movie goes, some of those leaders left the church and the hippies stayed. And those leaders who were so baptized in their traditions, if you will, missed a major movement of God. In fact, many of you have been praying for another Jesus revolution in our time, amen? Because that was 50 plus years ago now. We'd love to see that again, but let me ask us a question. Would we be flexible enough if the expression of the people searching looked a little different in our day and some social barriers were crossed and we had to bend and flex? I'm not talking about an essential doctrine here because we die on those hills. I'm talking about things that maybe we have elevated to the point of tradition that are not God's heart at all. So this is what we're dealing with as we deal with some of these issues. Whose rules? Who do we worship? Where does it come from and why? 
One writer says, Jesus' ministry, his teachings, miracles, and outreach to outcasts was not only an expression of God's heart of compassion, but a critique of Pharisaical religion. Jesus will use illustrations like old clothing and uh, old and new wineskins and new wine to represent Judaism, both teachings in the Torah that are fulfilled in Christ, that is, the temple, the sacrificial system. Uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 8 says that the new covenant has supplanted the old so that the old is obsolete. Let me be careful how I say this. I don't think that Jesus is saying you can't celebrate the Passover and the full meaning of that. I don't think he's saying that. He's saying this. If you go back to the shadows that have been fulfilled by the Messiah, the book of Hebrews is all about a group, early group of Jewish Christians being tempted to go back to the sacrificial system in the temple. Five major warning, scary warning passages in the book of Hebrews basically say to that group of believers, if you go back there to the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 10, 4, that can never take away your sin, there will be no sacrifice for your sin. There's no efficacy in that. There's nothing that the blood of a bull or a goat can do for you or a lamb or anything else because the Messiah has come to fulfill that. Amen? That's what Jesus came to critique. He came to critique the system that has been now fulfilled by the new covenant, hence the new and old wineskins, the new clothing and the old clothing, etc. But it starts off here with a question, the third in the chapter so far. Then, 14, Matthew 9, the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, and implied as you and your disciples since you lead them, do not fast? Now we see three religious groups in the verses leading up to this. Look at your Bible with me. In verse three, we see the scribes. Jesus told a paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes, religious group number one, said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, how inconvenient for them, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? And then, of course, he heals the paralytic. We've already studied that together. The second group, we have the scribes in verse three. We have the Pharisees in verse 11. Jesus has called Matthew from the tax collector's booth, Matthew 9, 9. He would be a hated man in his generation. He was probably collecting from fishermen. And Jesus called him. And Matthew was so excited about following the Lord, he threw a dinner party, remember? At his home, it was an IRS dinner party. Remember that from last week? Something you really want to go to. So Jesus is there reclining in this home. Everybody's having a good time, eating and drinking. And outside, peering into the windows, are the Pharisees. And look what they say. They say, when the Pharisees saw this 11, they said to his disciples, probably finding the nearest one to bend their ear, why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? Now, second group Second question, Jesus will go on to say, verse 12, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick, and that God is a God of compassion. That's verse 13. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Praise God that he reached down into my mess and called me out of that. And then the third group is identified as the disciples of John. That's verse 14. That's John the Baptist. These are early Baptists. 
It's kind of a joke. But, and do you know how you could identify them? They had camel's hair suits on, and they're holding boxes of honey nut, locust, and wild honey cereal. But they couldn't eat it because they were fasting. Now, what we learn from uh, an extra-biblical source and Luke 18, verse 12, if you're taking notes, is that the Pharisees fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And there's nothing in the Bible that mandated that fast. In fact, there's only one holy day, one feast in the seven feasts of Israel in the Old Testament that required a fast. It was a one-day fast, and it was on Yom Kippur, or what we know as the Day of Atonement. Outside of that, there is absolutely no required fast in the entire Bible. Yet, the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Some scholars say they fasted only during daylight hours. Perhaps it was a 24-hour fast on Mondays and Thursdays. The setting of the question is Matthew's house, the party going on. From what we can tell, the party's still the setting. People eating and drinking, Jesus and his disciples, and people are probably fasting at the moment. The Pharisees and the disciples of John. And they look in, and they're like, Ugh. Do you know when you're being spiritual and other people aren't? And you're like, how could you? Eating and drinking. Look at, look at him. Look at what he's eating over there. Don't even take another bite. <laughs> now, why? Why would there be a guilt complex? Why would they have an issue? Because they had a man-made tradition of fasting twice a week. And their tummy, tummies were a little rumbly. And they were, have you heard this word before? Hangry. Have you heard that? Hangry. Combination of hungry and angry. Right? And they were peering in with the judgmental eye. How dare them? This is a fast day, and they're feasting. Warren Wiersbe said, the Christian life should not be a funeral. It should be a feast. Amen? Amen. Now, there's going to be times, of course, when we mourn and stuff like that. But look, we're in the kingdom. We're forgiven people. So we need to have the joy of the Lord. And Jesus had the oil of joy more than his companions, Hebrews 1, verse 9. So the question from disciples of John the Baptist. Why? Now, the Pharisees and the disciples of John were no friends. They weren't chummy. In fact, when the Pharisees came where John was baptizing, John called them a brood of vipers. <laughs> That's not politically correct language, by the way. Basically, you generation of slimy snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So if the Pharisees and disciples of John are getting together on something, you know that this is probably something important to them. And the issue is all about fasting. Religious groups have a lot of rules. And a lot of rules have emerged in church history. In fact, some people thought, in order to take my faith seriously, I gotta live in a monastery, wear a robe, and uh, kind of just be like a monk. Some uh, took a vow of celibacy even though they didn't have the gift of singleness and celibacy and so suffered their whole lives thinking that they were pleasing to God by not being married and that was a man-made rule. There's nothing in the Bible that argues for that. It argues as an option if you have the spiritual gift. 
And so people did that because they would think, oh, I'm taking my faith seriously now. There's a story of a monk who did this and he took a vow of silence. He could only speak a couple words once a year. Can you imagine that? So the year came, first year went by and they said, what do you have to say? And he said, bed hard. Okay, they wrote that down. Another year goes by, now he can speak again and he says, food cold. Well, by the time the third year came, he was disgusted and he was done. And they said, what do you want to share? And he goes, I'm done, I'm over, you know, I can't do this anymore. And they go, no wonder, you've been complaining ever since you got here. <laughs> but I have to say, give some credit to the disciples of John for coming to Jesus like men instead of murmuring somewhere off to the side or backbiting in someone's ear, they came to him and maybe they were hurt. Maybe they were a little confused, like, okay, why is it that you, you are always with these people and you always seem to be eating and drinking and we're over here suffering because we're serious about our faith in God? And the question is, is that what makes you serious? Here's a further question. Why are there still disciples of John the Baptist? Do you know that John the Baptist was thrown in prison and later a message will come from John via his disciples and he will say to Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And I wonder if John languishing in prison may have concluded that perhaps Jesus wasn't the Messiah because of stuff like this. Because John lived a very ascetic life. Only ate locusts and wild honey, wore a camel's hair garment, called his generation to repentance. But then we know John pointed people to Jesus. So how do we navigate things like this? What's going on? Well, as you turn to the book of Acts for a moment, hold your place in Matthew, we'll come back. I want you to turn to Acts chapter nine, first of all. And I wanna say something about the new wine and the new covenant. Our ultimate Truth tests, Acts chapter nine, are what the New Testament says. Now, there are people in our culture who say, if Jesus didn't address something, then basically all bets are off and you can kind of do what you want to do in this area because Jesus didn't specifically address this. Now, I want to say that the Bible says that all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable. Literally, the language is breathed out by God. And since Jesus is God, all scripture is from Jesus. But I want you to see something in Acts chapter nine, and then we'll move to this question of the disciples of John. Look at verse 15. Ananias has been spoken to by the Lord Jesus to go and pray for Saul. Saul's a brand new convert, and he's being instructed to go lay hands on him and pray for him. And Ananias has questions like, Lord, don't you know who this guy is? He's destroying your church. And Jesus shares these words, Acts 9, 15. The Lord said to Ananias, go, for he, that Saul who becomes Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Now, the New Testament Pauline corpus, what that means is all the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, 
Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the Thessalonian letters, the, the letters of, to Titus and Timothy, we call them the pastoral epistles, are from the pen of Saul, who is Jesus' chosen instrument. Are you with me? We have a culture war going on right now. But my deeper concern is the war within the church. Because many professing evangelical leaders are saying, well, if Jesus never addressed A, B, and C, then it doesn't matter. You need to see that Paul's pen is an instrument of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that what Paul wrote is divine truth from the heart of Christ. Now that, that is something really important to understand because in the new wine of the gospel, the critique that Jesus has, he, he of course, God's truth doesn't change, but he's fulfilling Old Testament shadows, but he's not changing the moral law of God. He fulfills the Torah, the sacrificial system, if you will, but Jesus has all the, the heart of God does not change and it's just fulfilled. I hope you get my point. This is not an out for those who would argue. And, and let me just say, there are some, I'll put in quotes, progressive pastors who are frankly are just, it's another name for liberalism, who deny biblical truth and kind of pander the, to the culture. Now, I just want to say this with as much compassion as I can muster up. The issue is not name-calling or anything like that. The issue is truth. Because Jesus said truth would set you free. I shared a quote on Wednesday night. I stole it from somebody else. He put it this way. If you go with the spirit of the age, he said, if you mar marry the spirit of the age, you will be a constant widower. In, in Matthew 11, Jesus says, John the Baptist did not eat or drink. He lived the life of uh, the Nazarite vow. And you said he has a demon. This is in Matthew 11. The son of man came eating and drinking, participated in the world, if you will, or reached out uh, and crossed some of those social boundaries. And you say he's a gluttonous and a wine-bibber. But wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Here's what Jesus is saying. You're darned if you do and darned if you don't. And this is true in the religious circles, at least of that day as well. Let me give you one example and I'll move on from it. In our cultural wars right now, Target's at the center of much of what's going on, right? Their displays and so forth. And I, I think you guys know what's going on. So there was some pressure from parents and more conservative people and some of the stores moved the displays to the back of the store. Well, the people on the other side in favor of the displays got mad at Target. And so they started boycotting Target. And the conservative groups were already boycotting Target. And they were getting it from both directions. So I heard an interview and this guy said this. And you need to hear this for your own just insight into this issue. This guy said that behind all publicly traded companies, behind Wall Street, is a group of elites that are very influential and they have a grading system for all publicly traded companies. And you have to hit a minimum requirement 
in uh, what they call diversity and inclusion kind of stuff to hit the minimum score to please those guys. And basically, the bottom line is that it's all about the money. They know if they put something out there, if a company's gonna lose money, they position themselves to make money if a company, you know, uh, goes, goes south. And they know how to position themselves to make money if the company does well. Just listen to this statistic. In the last two weeks, Target has lost 12.7 billion dollars in stock. Now, I didn't say that for you to applaud, but whatever. Because I don't applaud the demise of anybody, really. But, but let me just say this. But, but do you see what's happened is perhaps for some... You, look, you, why do you start a business? Well, you may want to have a positive influence on society, but you, you start a business to make money. So there's something else going on here, right? And whenever you're in doubt, follow the money. There's something else going on, and, there, and there's scoring going on. But the people behind it, please hear me. The individuals caught up in the debates on both sides and in between are the collateral damage. They could care less about you because you are just a means to their end. Now, I'm not saying there's not some middle ground here. All I'm saying is this. When you follow the money, these people don't care who they step on as long as they can position themselves to serve the God of mammon. You need to understand that. Because man is fickle, and man will move on from you without giving it a second thought. They could care less. Now, Jesus cares, and obviously, he's crossed all these social boundaries. Move over to Acts 18 for a second, a little bit further to your right. Because he cares. And I, and I want to say this to every Christian hearing my voice. If we lead only with everybody's doing everything wrong, and we don't lead with the good news of the gospel and the compassion of God, we got it wrong. What were you saved from? Oh, your sins may look different, but... Aren't you glad that a messenger of Christ, an ambassador of the gospel, maybe somebody on the radio, podcast, television, preached hope to you to pull you out of the mire of your sin? I'm sure glad because I had created a mess for myself. And the gospel reached into my mess and Jesus washed me in his blood. If the church loses sight of the leading with the gospel... We're in trouble. Now, yes, we've got to try to speak to our culture, but I think it's got to start here in the church where we say, look, let's, let's get truth right. We can speak the truth in love. Now, I want to just address the, uh, these disciples of John just for a second. Look at Acts 18, 24. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, Acts 18, 24, an eloquent man came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but notice, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. My point is this. Some people in that day had only heard the baptism of John. 
They needed more information about the full gospel of Christ. And Priscilla and Aquila were there to explain. Look at Acts 19, verse 1. It came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there was a Holy Spirit. He said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues or other languages and prophesying. There were, there were in and all, interestingly enough, about 12 men. And he entered the synagogue, Paul did, and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. That's our theme through Matthew. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, that's Christianity, before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, probably these that he had ministered to or witnessed to, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Back to Matthew chapter nine. Here's my point. Along the way, there were people who had heard part of the truth. And part of our job, when we're speaking to people who profess to be Christians or maybe are interested in the things of God, is to patiently share truth in love. Right? That's what 2 Timothy 2 says. We need to be patient with people. We need to share the truth in love and bring them along. Some people don't know everything. They've kind of heard piecemeal stuff. Some people are simply parroting what they've heard on the internet or regurgitating arguments that they've heard in certain circles. And our job is to bring truth in love with as much patience as we can because we can't forget what God saved us from. Amen? Your master did that. He crossed social boundaries, tax gatherers, sinners, lepers, uh, the, the paralytic, etc. all to do what? Go learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. He has a heart for the broken. He has a heart for you and for me. That's the only reason I'm standing here because God has a heart for the lost. And so they said to him, Luke's version, 533, the disciples of John often fast, offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees do the same, but yours, eat and drink. Uh, how about giving us some insight? Maybe they're hurt. Maybe they have questions. I will say almost every movement in the evangelical world has elevated things that we might say to an unbiblical place. It could be, for example, I'll... I'll mentioned another movement, Calvary Chapel, has been big on zero alcohol for believers. Well, that's not a Bible verse. The Bible says don't get drunk with wine, but if you have a glass of wine with dinner, as long as you keep it in its proper place, and I know alcohol has been an issue for some people, but hear what I'm saying. It seemed like the message from Calvary Chapel pastors is if you have a, a, a glass of wine with your steak dinner, you're in sin, and that's a lie. It's not true. 
And that's elevating a man-made tradition. Now, there might be reasons why some of you would abstain from that if you have weaknesses in that area or you're going to stumble somebody. We all know those things. But when we start taking man's things above God's word, we're in trouble. Jesus responds, 15, we'll move quickly. Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom, Matthew 9, 15, cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? He always, <laughs> Jesus is so brilliant, answering a question with a question. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He doesn't say they ought to fast when this happens, or they must fast, but they will fast. I'll come back to that. Jesus compares himself to a groom in a wedding. He calls himself the bridegroom. When you go to a wedding, we're about to have a wedding in our family in the next couple of weeks, and when we go there, I will not be fasting. <laughs> I am going to eat cake in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and I believe I will be on solid ground. And when we go to a wedding, we don't go there mourning. We don't go there saying, oh, no, I can't have a piece of cake. I'm fasting today. It's Thursday. No, 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 no. You celebrate appropriate to the occasion, obviously within biblical bounds. But if we start being wet blankets everywhere we go, we look like we're the morning, you know, members of the body. <laughs> Who's going to want to hear that message? Get serious, right? Shh. <laughs> I woke some of you up with that. Like, you guys get what I'm saying? No. <laughs> Jesus says the days will come. Now, I just want to say this uh, that you can note it in passing, but it's not something that should just be said in passing. The bridegroom in the Old Testament was none other than, y than Yahweh. Jesus is making another argument that he is God. Listen to these verses. Isaiah 54, 5. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Isaiah 54, 5. Hosea 2, 16 says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my master. Hosea 2, 16. Jesus once again is saying, I am Yahweh using the bridegroom imagery from the Old Testament, making it clear that he is God. The bridegroom has come. God is here. Do we mourn or do we rejoice? Now, when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. What does that mean? It means perhaps the crucifixion of Jesus, his burial, when they were mourning during the, those dark hours. Some believe it could include the ascension of Christ and that we're in that history where fasting would be appropriate. You ask, should we fast? My answer, if you want to. How long should I fast? A meal? If you want to. Two meals? If you want to. Three days? If you want to. You, go, you all know Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, right? He wasn't slacking in this area. But you fast if you're led by the Holy Spirit and you do it because it is Spirit-led. Isaiah 58 says, if on the day of your fast you're hangry, 
loose translation. <laughs> and you're brawling with your brothers and sisters on the day. Yeah, but I'm fasting. Yeah, I just slugged them in the face, but I'm fasting. It's meaningless. If you're fasting because someone pressured you into it or some tradition or religion pressured you into it, and we all know there's religions that say during this season, you must fast. Why? Because it puts you in better standing with God. Who says? Show me the verse. Well, it's a tradition. <laughs> tradition. I'm not concerned about those kinds of things. I'm concerned about pleasing my king as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Amen? And I think a lot of us are still in recovery regarding some of these things. All right? So let's just see Jesus' illustrations now, and we're done. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. So you have an older garment. You've washed and dried it a number of times. You don't take a newer piece of cloth and try to patch things, because then it'll shrink, and the hole will get worse, and it'll pull away. Nor do men, 17, put new wine into old wineskins. Key words are new and old because he is drawing the analogy to, from the, to the new and old covenant. Otherwise, the wineskins burst. Now, my understanding is they would put wine in the ancient world into a goatskin bag. That's the image that we have up here for you. And new wine would go into a new wineskin, a goatskin bag, and that bag would flex with the fermentation of the wine. Wine is in one sense alive. It has properties in it that cause it to expand. And so as it ferments, the bag moves with the fermentation process and it can expand with it. But if you had an old bag, let's say you used it a number of times and now it's brittle and old, it's an old bag and you try to put the new wine in there, what's gonna happen to that old bag? It's gonna burst. I hate to burst your bubble. <laughs> but here's the thing. Jesus is saying the new covenant has come. God is doing a new thing. Therefore, you must flex with it. You must open up your heart. I am crossing social boundaries to reach out to the lost. The old covenant system is fulfilled in me. The bridegroom is here. Hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine being a person who reflected back on Jesus' three, three and a half year ministry and stayed stuck and thought, I missed it. The Messiah was on the planet. Talk about a once in a lifetime opportunity. Once in a thousand lifetimes opportunity. And do you imagine that some people look back and said, I crossed paths with him. I heard him teach and I stayed stuck in my tradition. Oh God, help us that we don't do that, that we have the heart of our God, that we're flexible where we need to be flexible, not on essential doctrine. Please hear me. We cannot flex on those things at all. We must stand on the essentials. Who is God? How do you get saved? There's no compromise there. But some of these other things that I've mentioned today have actually pushed people away from God or put people under such unnecessary burdens. Jesus said the sun will make you free. Truth will make you free. And people are walking around under burdens created by man-made systems. 
This is not the heart of God. So, oh, how we need discernment to know the difference and know how to walk it out. Father, thank you for this wonderful congregation. Thank you for these truths in scripture. I pray that where my words have lacked, uh, you will give discernment to your people on both understanding and how to walk out the application. We need great discernment in our time, Lord. We have watched much of the professing church, at least, uh, compromise on essential things, and it's a shame. And I pray that we would repent of that. But we've seen the other side of the spectrum too, Lord, and there's some repenting perhaps that we need to do there as well so that we can always convey accurately your heart, your truth. Would you just keep your head uh, and heart bowed for a moment? We're about to take the elements of communion to remember that new covenant, that blood that was shed for us, the blood of Christ. And if you've not opened your heart to him, just think about him. Maybe you can put everything else aside just for the moment and think about Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. Do you know him? On that day, you're gonna stand before him, the one that was wounded for your transgressions, bruised for your iniquities, the one that took the judgment of God the Father upon himself. Do you know him? Are you a prodigal? Are you someone who's just wayward? Are you someone that maybe you profess to be a Christian, but your heart is far from him? Oh, he is so close to each one of us. Maybe for you, the first time commitment is what you need to do. Oh, Jesus, you don't have to have a perfect prayer, but pray it right now. Forgive me. I've sinned against you, but I am so grateful that you came and died on that terrible cross for me, that you defeated death by rising from the dead. I don't understand all that I should, but I see who you are. And I repent and receive you as my King, my God, my Savior, my Lord. Please forgive me of all that I've done wrong. Make me a new creation in Christ, I pray. Maybe you're a prodigal. You've been wandering for perhaps a long time. And you would come home to him and just say, Lord, I, I want to come back to you. I want to trust you and walk with you and know who you are and where I fit into your kingdom and know that I'm royalty in Christ. You know, he'll hear your prayer if you genuinely just want to come home. And for this precious congregation, once again, Lord, I pray for a blessing as they take of the elements. I pray for uh, strength from your spirit. And I pray for peace and joy that represent the, the kingdom of God and all its blessings and realities. It's in your holy name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.